Welcome to Lunch Pell Sermons. My messages begin with the assumption that the Bible's teaching is simple. Love God, do good. With that simple message, the Spirit delivers divine haymakers that nudge us toward becoming better followers of Jesus. I hope this sermon helps you in living God's adventure for your life. We continue in our look at the story of Jonah, and we are at the very last chapter, so this will be our final week on Jonah. And we are looking at Jonah the Grouch. Jonah is a grump today. But as we see Jonah in his grouchiness, we find that Jonah's life does serve as a caution for us, a reminder for us. One of the themes that has been working through the course of Jonah is this idea of death and life. Now, certainly we've seen the mercy of God in place in each of the chapters. We're going to see the mercy of God again today. But this idea of death and life has been running through the background of the story of Jonah. Each chapter, we find ourselves weighing this concept of will the people choose death? Will the people choose life? God always providing the life option? And then people, as we've seen in the story of Jonah, making the best of that opportunity. As we come to this idea of death and life and this balance that's taking place here in Jonah, I want us to just kind of think a little bit about this from the idea of sin and God. Sin, at its very nature, is death. That is what sin is. Sin and death. And you can't hardly separate those two terms. They are intertwined with one another. Sin always wrapped around death. Death always wrapped around sin. In the midst of this sin and death, there is always destruction. And you can even just think of that in your own life as you look at the sins that you've committed and the way that that has called death to relationships around you, the way that that has called destruction to the people around you. Sin, always wrapped around death always leading to destruction. On the other side of that, we have God. And we find God who is always seeking life. And we can't separate God from life. Life comes from God. God gives life. And in the midst of this God and life intertwining together, we always see God as a builder, a creator, a maker of things, bringing things up, growing things. God the giver of life, the builder of things around us. No other place do we see that more clearly than in the Garden of Eden, of course. As we see God, creator, giving life, breathing life into all of creation, breathing his image into the uniqueness of people. And then we have the entrance of sin into the garden. What does sin lead to? says it's going to bring about death. It leads to the destruction of that relationship with God. It destroys the perfection of creation. And we see this idea of death and life at place in the story of Jonah. In chapter one, it was on the boats as the sailors 
faced death in the storm. They felt it imminent. And they said, we must call upon our gods and find out what's going on. And in the process, they soon learn it is the Lord God, Jonah's God, who is responsible for this terrible storm. They say, hey, we got to get right with that God. And with Jonah's help, they do. Life preserved. In chapter 2, we see Jonah in the belly of the fish, teetering upon death. Perhaps he should have died. People get swallowed by fish. I think they die. Jonah's going to be a rare exception. Takes Jonah three days, right, to get, get to all this straight and get all this um, put right with God. But eventually, Jonah's life is preserved. And then we see in chapter 3, once again, death and life being put before the people of Nineveh. As Jonah comes around proclaiming God's message, 40 days, Nineveh overturns. Death awaits the people of Nineveh. Destruction awaits the people of Nineveh because they have been continuing in their sin. But the people of Nineveh change. They leave their sin behind, follow God, their life preserved. Now, here in chapter 4, we are going to see this death and life being weighed in the balance again. And this time, Jonah, who is going to be fueled by anger, will twice declare, it's better for me to die than live. Jonah says, if this is how it's going to be, God, give me death. If this is your plan, God, I don't want any part of it. I don't choose life. I choose death. How does the story end for Jonah? We don't know. We don't know. We're kind of left hanging in the balance of Jonah's final days. But if there's anything we've learned from the first three chapters of Jonah is that God's mercy is good for all. And I think we're left hanging with this assumption that the mercy that has been bestowed upon sailors and Ninevites and Jonah himself will once again find Jonah the Grouch. Yeah, Jonah the Grouch. It's kind of a silly name, right? But we're going to see that Jonah's struggles are anything but silly. We're going to see that Jonah is an addict. His addiction is anger at others. We're going to see that Jonah is indeed a grouch, and he's going to have anger at the good. Each of the two sections that we look at today end with this question from God. Is it right for you, Jonah? Is it right for you to be so angry? And each time, Jonah will say, yes, it's right for me. But God will say, Jonah, Think of the concern that I have for the people of Nineveh. God has a great love for them, even though Jonah has none. Let's look at the passage today, and I'll read this for us. This is going to be Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. 
Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city where he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. For this is the word of the Lord. First thing we're looking at is Jonah the addict. And he has much anger towards others. I want you to think about this for a moment. Perhaps you haven't really thought of this idea, but I think it's true. And it's this, is that people, all of us, are wired for addiction. That in our innate nature, we are designed for addiction. We are designed to crave something and never be satisfied. And that thing that we crave, no matter how much we have of it, we always want more and more. And however much of it satisfies us today, doesn't satisfy us tomorrow. We are addicted to this thing. And ideally, of course, we should be addicted to God. Isn't that what our relationship with God is supposed to be like? We want more and more and more, and I'm never satisfied with what I have. God, I just can't have enough. But all of us don't have a perfect addiction for God. We have addictions for other things. And these addictions that we have, they affect all of our choices. Our choices revolve around this idea of how do I satisfy this addiction that I have? And sometimes we come to addictions that are more destructive and more easy to see in the people around us. So we think of things like alcohol and gambling. And we see those addictions as they destroy the lives and destroy families. Some addictions, though, don't have negative consequences by our understanding. They can actually bring about things that we would see as good. So some people might be addicted to work addicted to success. And they put their full life, everything in their life revolves around growing that business, being the best employee they can be. This work addict begins to receive great goods, great accolades. But the addiction is all the same. Each of us has the things to which we are addicted to which we strive, to which we revolve our life around, to which we crave more and more. Jonah's addiction is his hatred towards 
the Ninevites. He hates these people. And he will base every decision in his life on his hatred for this particular group of people. When God says, go to him, Jonah says, I'm I'm taking my whole life and I'm changing it. And I'm going the opposite. Jonah finally kind of gets that right, gets into the right place. And as we saw last week, Jonah does deliver the message of God. But he doesn't do so with great concern. And as we can see today, Jonah, even after delivering this message of God and seeing this great deliverance of people, still sits around in bitterness, yearning for their destruction. Jonah is an addict, and he has such hatred for other people. Let's look at the first verse in Jonah chapter 4. Let's read this together. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Two key words that we want to see in there. The first is but. Um, That connects us back to the last passage. That is the people who have turned to God and decided to follow him in that great city of Nineveh. There's been a huge act of repentance. And God has relented from the destruction that was waiting for them. That's the but. Jonah doesn't like that God has extended mercy to these people. And we have this idea of this. That God would show kindness to them, that God would be merciful. The very character of God, Jonah finds himself in conflict with. It's the very character of God, the very nature of who God is, the very indistinguishable aspect of God is God's mercy and forgiveness and grace for people. So the this that Jonah is angry about, God's mercy, that is who God is. We can't take the mercy of God and pull it from God's character because without it, God is not going to Let me explain that a little bit more for us. So I'm going to uh, read a passage coming out of Exodus chapter 34. And so this is Moses as he is coming back down after receiving the tablets, the the law from God. Moses coming down the second time and presenting that law to the people. This is an important moment in understanding who God is. Moses is literally carrying the edicts of God with him and coming down to the people for what will be the final time of doing this. We had the first go that didn't go so well. It didn't end well. Moses had to do a little redo. This this one's going to stick. This one's staying. I'm going to begin reading from Exodus chapter 34, uh, beginning in verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the ones, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord commanded. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. As he passed in front of, oh, there we go. Sorry, we're going to read that passage together because I want you guys to hear this. We're going to say that. Let's read. This is still the same group. We're going to read this part together. Let's read. As he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. 
the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The passage continues on. I'll continue reading. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is what Moses received. He's on Mount Sinai in the presence of God. He receives God's name. Talked a little bit about that. That's proclaiming there, the Lord, the Lord. And who is the Lord? He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And Jonah, in his complaint, is literally quoting this passage back to God, saying, I knew you were like this, God. But I don't like what you did to me. Jonah has an addiction to anger. And his addiction to anger and hatred is greater than his commitment. In fact, he would prefer death to maintain that addiction, to maintain that hatred. He will hold on to that hatred to the very grave rather than giving it up so that he can live in the life that God has called him to. Come back and think about us. Let's think about us as individuals. What addictions do we have? We've all got them. You see, as I mentioned earlier, I believe that we are wired for addiction, and that addiction should lead us into a perfect relationship with God, which we don't have. Things are getting in the way of that. It's your addictions that are getting in the way of that perfect relationship with God. And often we have excuses for whatever our addiction might be. You know, and it's easy to think we hear of other people's excuses. We, we can understand those with a little more clarity. Sometimes we don't quite have the ability to self-reflect and hear our own excuses as they spill from our mouth. But think about maybe the people around you and the excuses you've heard for their addiction. The work addict. Maybe you've encountered that person. I'm just trying to provide the best for my family. I just want the very best for them. They've got an excuse. That's why they're addicted to work. Whatever your addiction is, you have an excuse too. I have my excuses too. Jonah certainly had his excuses. To be willing to give those up. We have to be willing to fully commit ourselves to God. And as we think of leading away from addiction, all the paths are long and hard. There is no easy way to untangle ourselves from the addictions that bind us. One of the things we know from treating addictions is that they are never defeated. They are never defeated. You know someone who's defeated an addiction? No. You know someone who says, I've lived with it, I just haven't given in to it. I've been sober for six months. 
right? That's what the person says. I'm, they, I am still of this. I'm still an addict. But I've chosen sobriety for this amount of time. Our addictions are not defeated. And at best, they are replaced. Let us replace it with the presence of God. Unless you want to end up like Jonah, who is an absolute grouch, who sees an incredible work of God, and all he can think when he sees this incredible turning of hundreds of thousands of people to God, a repentance probably unparalleled in human history. And all Jonah can say is, I wish they would die. Because they won't die, I wish I was dead. We often think of addictions as the idea of individual, and that's certainly true. But we also have group addictions. Have you thought about that before? That we as a church have addictions within our community, things that we are committed to. Churches always have addictions. That is the idea. The churches have things that they refuse to give up. They say, we're always going to do that, no matter what. And these sacred cows in the church, these aren't theological. Once again, we've talked a little bit before. It's not that churches are having great arguments and refuse to give up certain theological points. Sometimes if we need to argue over theology and figure that out. That's a, that's a little bit different than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sacred cows of church. The things that we'll say, we'll always do that. No matter what. I remember looking through some different church material and seeing some examples of churches. And there was this one as this advisor came in to speak to a congregation that was moving in significant decline, facing death. The advisor says, if you don't change, you'll die. You know the people in the church decided? They said, we're, we're just going to stay like we are, and then we'll just die. It's like an addict, right? It's like someone who's addicted to smoking, and the doctor says, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to die. We can give you 10 more years of your life if you stop right now. And the smoker says, nah, I can't give it up. Leads to the path of early death. Same way in a church. What things do we refuse to give up that lead us into a path of death? Because we're addicted to it. And certainly in our church, we could explore what are these things. And this isn't the, the format here to think about that. And I actually didn't even kind of even process through our church to say, what are those things? And point those out. Those are things that for us as a community to think about in our roles of leadership. And we all have roles of leadership and influence be thinking, hmm, are we addicted to that thing? Do we refuse to give up? Knowing that it doesn't really lead us to God, we're so used to doing it the way it is. And certainly, just the example of churches that have uh, gone through the life cycle of churches. One of the areas where churches have traditionally found disputes is over music. And you know, that's not today's church. That's churches going long before it. And churches will say, oh, we have to sing these particular songs, this group of songs. And if we don't sing those, right, then we're not going to be a church. Like, we just, if we do church, we have to do these songs. And 
Yeah, you could, but it kind of feels a little bit like a sacred cow. And as we think of songs, which get, I, I actually have not experienced that in this church. So I'm using that as an example of something I haven't experienced. But as we think of churches who are saying, oh, we, we've got to use these particular songs. You know, there was once an age where using hymns was considered revolutionary. And people despised the use of hymns in the church because they said the only thing you should be singing are the songs. So just seeing anything other than Scripture in the church was heresy. And now we have a little bit different struggle as we think of that. The church, what are our addictions? It's a good thing for us to think about. It's not something I'd actually kind of thought before in this concept of addiction until um, putting this message together. But it is something for us within the church to begin wrestling with those ideas. And as a church, we want to be cautious of anything that pulls us away from our mission. Anything that detracts us from the mission before us. And what ultimately is our mission as a church, the mission of all churches, as they should be, is to make disciples and do good. That's what we are called to do as a church. When God, Jesus, ascended to heaven and he left his people there, make disciples and do good. Those are the things that we need to be about. And anytime we are engaged in activities that aren't part of making disciples and do good, be able to walk away from those. There are good things that we can do in a church. Absolutely. But they also have seasons of life. We need to let those seasons finish them up. Next section we're going to look at is Jonah the Grouch and his anger at the good. Don't often think of being having anger towards good, but Jonah absolutely does. So as the story goes in Jonah, he makes a shelter waits for the judgment upon Nineveh, waiting for their destruction. And Jonah has become angry that the Ninevites have experienced good, that God has spared them and given them good. And then God provides a little lesson for Jonah. And this lesson comes in the form of a And so God allows this plant to grow up to give Jonah shade as he is sitting there waiting for the Ninevites' destruction. Jonah's happy. He's got got a little shade. He feels cooler. You know, the breeze probably feels a little bit better. Let destruction come. On the next day, God uses a worm, and that worm kills the plant. Story of Jonah, God uses the big fish. Uses the small worm. Plant dies. Jonah's now out there without any shade, waiting for the Ninevites' destruction. He's getting scorched by them. Jonah gets so angry over this plant. He's like, God, why did you take the plant away? Give me death. I don't want to have to live like this. Then God says to Jonah, you know what, Jonah? I gave you that plant. You know what, Jonah? I can take it away, too. You know what, Jonah? You seem to care more about that day-old plant than you do for the eternally living people of Nineveh. God is not happy about that. 
Let's read this verse together. And should I not have concerned for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Jonah's feelings guide his understanding. Jonah's being led by his feelings. And his feelings make him think he deserves the shade. I deserve that plant. That good thing I had, I earned it. Look, I'm part of God's faithful people. I was even obedient. I'm a prophet of God. Don't I deserve a little bit? And Jonah feels anger that God's goodness bestowed upon his enemy. In the midst of this, Jonah fails to understand God's character, that there is love for all, even the evil. That's a hard concept for some people to wrap their mind around. That God loves the evil as well as the good. That God does not separate those two in the concern for human beings. So take a moment. Think, who do you consider the greatest evil? Think of an action. What the person would do that, that's the greatest evil. We pick it up. So in your mind right now, who do you think commits the greatest evil? Put it in there. Hold on to it. I want you to know that God loves that person with the same love that God has for you. Yeah, the person who comes and worships God with other people. The person who comes and adjusts their schedule so that they can come to a service. God loves the evil as well as the good. Jesus reminds us of that truth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provides one of his very hard teachings when he says to love your enemies. I think when we come to Jesus and think, what is the essential teaching of Jesus that shows how hard it is to fully follow God? It is this idea of loving your enemies. That is a hard thing that Jesus calls us to, an almost impossible task. And in the midst of that passage, Jesus reminds us of this. Let us read this together. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What we call common grace, that the goodness of God is available to the good and the evil, to the righteous and the unrighteous. We think back into the story of Jonah and think where we are. Jonah, angry at the good that comes to these people. Do we ever resent the good circumstances of others? We do. We do, don't we? You know what? When that coworker gets the promotion that we deserved. 
you know, they kind of played the system a little bit better, a little bit better friends with the boss. Oh, I deserve that. I earned that. I worked for that. And that coworker gets filled bitterness towards him. What about family members who experience success? We know they're cheats. You know, the cousin who gets that great job, who buys the beautiful house, lives in the fantastic neighborhood. Oh, and in our mind, we're like, man, they're on their third marriage. They don't even know their first two kids. Why do they get this stuff? And I'm trying to do the right thing, and I don't have all that stuff. And it's a church. Do we ever resent the good that comes to other congregations? Do we ever long for the people that go to so-and-so's church? Or so-and-so church. And we say, oh, why do they have more people than we do? And we somehow elevate our status above theirs, questioning why God would do that. We do. It's jealousy, isn't it? It's jealousy as we long for things that others have. And then we wrap around this idea, we deserve it more than they. And when we do that, we're acting like just like Jonah. Jonah, who doesn't understand the goodness of God is forever. Jonah, who doesn't understand that the rains come down on the righteous and the unrighteous of life. And in the midst of this jealous that, jealousy that we have towards others, we shout, it's unfair! I this. I'll tell you what I tell my own children. When we think life is unfair, it's a beautiful thing that God does not treat us fairly. Our whole relationship with God is built on unfairness. Because if God was fair with us, then we would be accountable for all the wrong things that we have done. But through the work of Jesus Christ, God gives us grace and mercy, just like God gave grace and mercy to the people of Nineveh. God gives us things that we haven't earned and withholds punishments that we rightly deserve. God treats us unfairly. That's a fabulous, most wonderful thing because that's how we have a relationship with God. Sometimes life will treat you unfairly. Circumstances will not turn out like we think they should. We will not get what we think we deserve. Something will happen to us that we don't think we've earned. Have a bitterness, a jealousy. And in the midst of that, I just want you to know, God's unfair. And that is the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is the unfairness of God with us. And in this world of unfairness, God uses that for the glory of God, and that is good news for us. Let me pray for us this morning. Thanks for listening to Lunch Pell Sermons. Now it's time to put these words into action and go live our adventure. Let's love God and do good.